Welcome. It's great seeing all of you. If you would uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. I love to exposit a text, and then sometimes it's important to stop and back up and, 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 and look at Scripture in the storyline of the canon, what's going on in the whole of the Bible regarding this text. How does it play into the big picture? And so um, there, there's, there's a place to back up and see the forest instead of just the trees, and that's a bit of what we're going to be doing today as we um, uh, get a, a look at uh, Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47, and then Acts 4, um, 32 and following, but uh, also then looking at uh, a number of other texts that I think uh, have bearing on a similar idea. So, uh, title of our series that we're in is Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom, and the title of this particular message is The Waxing and Waning of God's Kingdom Vision. The Waxing and Waning of God's Kingdom Vision. And um, if you would begin reading with me in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, I will be reading from the new, I'm sorry, from the English Standard Version um, of, of Scripture. Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in Acts 4:32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your word, to understand it, and to uh, be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Regarding these verses, which we just read, Mark Buchanan writes the following, quote, It's funny, but the older I get and the longer I'm in ministry, the more naive and idealistic I become, at least in some areas. For sure, in other areas, I'm more cynical and pessimistic now than ever. And then after some examples of how he is cynical, maybe, and pessimistic, he continues, I more and more believe that the church can look and sound and believe and act like the church did 2,000 years ago when the Spirit first fell like fire and came like a hurricane and everyone liked everyone else and shared as anyone had need and bystanders rushed to become participants. I not only believe that this is possible, I believe it's normative. It's the way 
it's supposed to be. End quote. I share his sentiment. In other words, this isn't in the Bible, just so we can know how bad we are as churches by way of comparison. It's in the Bible because we are supposed to strive for it, believing it is in some large measure possible to live that way. Yes, we must note that Acts 5 and 6 come closely on the heels with Ananias and Sapphira and the neglect of the Grecian widows. But those narratives actually prove the point. They don't take away the point. In the first case, Ananias and Sapphira, selfish ambition was so out of place that it led to the death of those involved. And in the other case, that of the neglect of the Grecian widows, neglect of the poor was so unacceptable it called for a reorganization of the apostolic church. Unhindered perfection is not possible. But the experience described is actually intended to be the witness of the church in the world. The picture painted in Acts 2 and 4 is the vision God has put before His people. But there is a problem. And one that is evident, not just in our church, but in virtually every church mentioned in the New Testament. What's that problem? This glorious vision for the church waxes and wanes in the hearts of God's people in the long marathon of faith. At times it grows, at times it ebbs. Jesus warned about this and the author of Hebrews faced it head on. Waxing and waning is an expression that comes from the phases of the moon. Most of you are probably aware of that as the moon gets bigger each night until it is full. It's said to be waxing. And as the moon then gets smaller each night until it's but a sliver, it is waning. And the glorious vision for the church that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 waxes and wanes in the hearts of God's people in our long marathon of faith. It grows and it shrinks, and, and not without cause. We're going to explore why under three headings this morning. Uh, a parable about waxing or waning, uh, a case study of waning vision, and then grace to overcome waning vision. And so under our first heading, uh, a parable about waxing and waning. And by the way, I, just to be clear up front, that middle point is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So a little bit in this front part and then spend a lot of time in the middle. Um, a parable about waxing and waning. And, and if you would, read with me from Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse number 11. Now, now, the parable is this. The seed is the word, we might say the message of God. Matthew's account, the message about the kingdom. That's the message that Jesus was proclaiming. The, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, 
Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You're probably familiar with that parable, the parable of the sower as it's commonly called. The seeds are sown into four soils of different conditions. The seeds landing in three of those soils sprout because they latch on to the vision of the kingdom. They initially receive it with joy. Two of those sprouts end up losing their joyous confidence, as the author of Hebrews might put it. We'll see that in a moment. And that seed does not bear fruit. Only the sprouts growing in the fourth and final soil mature and bear fruit with patience. Finishing the course, this long marathon of faith, is every bit as important as starting it. And finishing will require patience, or maybe the ESV's steadfast endurance is better. Patience is more what I need behind a slow driver, at least the way we use it today. Endurance is what I need if I live in North Korea. At least that's how we use it. (laughs) I know they mean the same thing. I'm not arguing that point. I'm just saying that's just how we've come to use it. And so we need endurance. We need steadfast endurance. The two sprouts who first embrace the message of the kingdom but lose that vision are, first of all, those who are on the rock. They receive the message with joy and believe for a while, but in time of testing fall away. As Matthew puts it, they endure for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the message, they fall away. Fruit bearing requires endurance under pressure, and endurance for some time. Those amongst thorns, they hear... And by implication, receive it. But it is choked by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Again, Matthew says deceitfulness of wealth. Cares, riches, pleasures of life. Deceitfulness of wealth is the same same thing, really. Choking out the growth of the plant by way of weeds is a slow process. Those on the rocks, they they get dried out much faster, but... These weeds growing, it doesn't seem to be an issue at first, but eventually it can choke them out. It takes time. Of course, the list of cares, riches, uh, uh, pleasures of life, or deceitfulness of wealth, the the list is not exhaustive. There could be other things that might choke the message. However, these are also fairly encompassing so that many things would fit under them as well. This parable posits a vineyard in which, amid the various sprouts, the vision of the kingdom will wax and wane. For some it's growing, for some it's waning. But that's the kind of vineyard that will be there. Second, a case study of waning vision. It's interesting, we have a case study of this right in the Bible. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, was not sent to a church upon whom, as Buchanan put it, 
the Spirit first fell like fire and came like a hurricane, and everyone liked everyone else and shared as anyone had need, and bystanders rushed to become participants. No. The book of Hebrews was written to a church some 25 years in, second generation. These were not those seeds who had been sown on the path, who Satan came immediately and took the word. There's no root whatsoever. No, these are either those sown on rocky ground, among thorns, or on good soil. One of those latter three. In fact, they were on the verge of being those who, uh, on the good soil, producing fruit. But they still needed something, and the author of Hebrews tells them that what they need is endurance so that when they have done the will of God, they will receive the promise, according to Hebrews 10, 36. These believers were in danger of bailing on their faith. The author writes, And we are Jesus' house, if indeed we hold fast to the end of our joyous confidence, and that in which we gladly place our hope. We are, we are His house, Jesus' house. If we hold fast to the end of our confidence, our joyous confidence, and that in which we gladly place our hope. What is that in which we gladly place our hope? What is it? Is it not the coming of the kingdom of God, a kingdom which is coming already? And not yet. We gladly place our hope in this kingdom and we get excited, especially when we see those evidences of the already, right? I love the already. We get a little bit discouraged by the not yet. And over the long haul, the not yet just kind of begins to wear. They've been at it now some 20, maybe 25 years or so with these believers. It appears that the joyous confidence of the believers to whom this author is writing is waning. It's in danger of disappearing. Although this metaphor of bearing fruit versus thorns this is kind of similar to the parable of the sower, as we call it, it appears in Hebrews. The primary metaphor in the book of Hebrews is of a journey, or maybe better described as a marathon of sorts, through a desert wilderness... A land filled with trials and testing. A place that will put the sprouts to the test. This journey metaphor is laid out extensively in chapters 3 and 4, borrowing language about Israel's wilderness journey and applying it to those believers who needed grace to help them in their, their, their time of, of testing, their struggles, to help them finish the race. They needed grace to help them finish the race. The author is concerned that these believers might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness and lose their original joyous confidence, according to chapter 3 and verse 13. Joyous confidence they had some 25 years prior when they were willing to love each other and forsake everything on account of Christ, as we're told in chapter 10. It, it seems they had begun, at least in some fashion, to grumble as Israel in the wilderness. As he continues, he arguably gives two of the strongest warnings against falling away that are contained in the whole of Scripture, certainly the whole of the New Testament. First, in chapter 6, warning that we might 
bear fruit useful for God's purposes and not thorns and thistles, lest we be thrown in the fire. Then in chapter 10, there's an even stronger warning. But what I want to draw our attention to is not so much the warnings here, but how he introduces that warning. This is what comes right before that warning. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Contrast that with Acts 2, 46. Day by day, attending the temple uh, together and breaking bread in their homes. And then in chapter 3, 32 of Acts, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. In the book of Acts, when they were ablaze with vision, you couldn't keep them apart. In Hebrews, he has to warn them not to neglect coming together. Do you see that contrast between the beginning and as they're nearing this latter part of the marathon of faith? In the aftermath of this pandemic, which I don't know that we can say aftermath, I don't know that it's over, but we're certainly in a different place than we were over the last two years. Which, which was a sort of forced and for a season necessary neglect of gathering. According to the people who gather the statistics, which I don't, and I don't really spend much time reading them, but I get told about them, many who once considered fellowship important no longer do. I was talking to another pastor on Thursday when I shared that our attendance is down about 25% since the start of the pandemic, and he brightened up said, that's good. The average church is down 50%. <laughs> I thought, maybe, but it sure doesn't feel good. The journey metaphor in Hebrews continues into chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11 is all about how others have journeyed by faith. They, the finish line not being crossed until a future day. Then this, quote, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This marathon toward the vision of God's coming kingdom requires perseverance. The path to the fulfillment of that vision is not the course we would choose. It is the one marked out for us. Note that he says this race marked out for us. I don't know about you. I, I, would, I would mark out a rather different race. <laughs> I would say, you know, I, I want the easy path. But that's not the one he gives us. Rarely is that the one we experience. And rather he allows suffering along that path. Certainly his own son Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. 
how much more us. Jesus is the one we look to for how to run the race. He will perfect our faith in the crucible of trials. Now, the conclusion to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, hints at some of the symptoms of waning vision, waning joyous confidence. Neglecting their life together was raised in chapter 10. We read it a moment ago in 10, 24, and 25. But in chapter 13, the author addresses another neglect of the body. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. That's an interesting statement, as though in prison with them. It's not just like, you know, remember them, (laughs) but remember them as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, which seems to be communicating a similar idea, that you're somehow one in in the body. I, I, I think it's referencing the body of Christ, though there's a couple of ways it could be taken. You're of the same body. And so if they're mistreated, the implication is, guess what? So are you. Uh, Those in prison as if you're in prison with them. Notice the emphasis on our oneness. Another way they seem to have neglected life together was to neglect those suffering. So they were not just neglecting their gathering together, but they were neglecting the actual people who might gather, the people who had needs, the people who were in prison, likely for their faith, they need to be remembered as if we were the ones there in their, you know, suffering for their faith. So there's a oneness, there's a unity that's assumed that stands behind this. Our being one body has many implications. Some of us may, may feel as if serving in NCK, that's our children's ministry here, for those that are new, New Creation Kids, that's what it stands for, but we just always shorten it to NCK, it's, it's a name all its own at this point. But the, some of us may feel as if serving in that would be like being in prison, ah, I don't want to serve in NCK. However, when we have this we are one body approach, if that's the way we view it, we realize that these aren't other people's children. They're our own. These aren't the Irwin's children or the Carver's children. They're our children. We're one family. It's a little bit like When the kids were young, Donna never asked me to babysit the children. <laughs> you don't babysit your own children. I'm their dad for crying out loud. And there's a little bit of that kind of in, in that notion of, man, we need volunteers. I don't know, I didn't volunteer for my own children, they're my responsibility. There's just this element, they're they're family. And here, the children across the way are our family. But honestly, that's easy to grab when we're we're first envisioned and fired up. And, you know, 20-some years in, like us as a church, 
almost three decades, two and a half plus decades in. Yeah, we need volunteers because we need people to babysit the kids or whatever it is we think they're doing, right? It feels more like that, at least we're inclined to go there, than like we're family and it's our responsibility. Now, I can assure you that not everybody over there feels that way or they wouldn't be over there. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Some of you are thinking he's quit preaching and gone to meddling, and it's true. It's, it's, it's true. <laughs> then the, the author of Hebrews addresses concerns regarding sexual temptation. It, it might seem odd in our culture, at least our, our, our larger evangelical culture, that the focus is primarily on the married, where we tend to put so much focus on the unmarried. But either way... It's a needed exhortation. Keep your life, or I'm sorry, back, uh, I, I jumped a line. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Where kingdom vision wanes, much like midlife crisis, I suppose, temptations toward sensual desires increase. He seems to think that this warning, this caution is necessary. That they need to be on guard. And then here's one that he speaks to that strongly contrasts with Acts 2 and 4 that we began with. Where, where they did not consider their possessions their own in Acts 2 and 4, but they shared freely. Here we read, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that an interesting little contrast? Wow, we've, we've gone so far with losing vision. We've gotten down to the very sliver of the moon. We've waned so far that it's not even, hey, share your possessions. No, just be content with what you have would be a step in the right direction. Wow. Evidently, the kingdom vision of Acts 2 and 4 is not ablaze in their hearts. Amen? This warning, this admonition would not be necessary. And there's evidently, I guess, apparently at some level, a waning devotion to the apostolic teaching. Because he says then in, in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And keep in mind, they didn't bring Bibles home with them when they left the place of worship. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't, the value on the word of God. Who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led, astray, led away by diverse and strange teachings. That contrasts with they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And then what comes next may seem like a digression, but I think it's still on point. We read starting in verse 13, 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him. That's Jesus. Then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Oh, there we go. We're going to push them and nudge them in that direction. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I suspect if they were anything like us, they didn't like bearing the reproach of Christ. I, I don't like, I'm just a confession, I don't like bearing the reproach of Christ. I haven't quite figured out how to make myself like it. I'm willing, right? But I don't like it. And suffering. I, I, I suspect that the atmosphere was not continually a sacrifice of praise to God, but more like the Israelites in the wilderness. I wonder if this bearing reproach and continual offering of praise stands in contrast to the drooping hands and injured knees that are mentioned in chapter 12 with its bitter root. They were neglecting sacrificial doing of good, the joyous laying down of their lives to help one another. They, they seem to have ceased sharing their possessions because, well, our family is hungry they've lost the fact that it's our family. We're not sharing because it's no longer the food God gives us, it's the food God gives me. We've stopped praying, give us today our daily bread, and we've started praying, give me today my daily bread. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, obedience to leaders is not because they're perfect. That's not given as a reason. In fact, it's not even because they're right (laughs) Uh, all the time. No, it's much like parents. It's because the work of parenting is difficult, the work of leading is difficult. And adding to those difficulties only makes matters worse for you and the rest of the family. It's a bit like the difficult child. Those who have a lot of kids, you know, you've got a lot of kids means two, I think, these days. But, you know, maybe it's three, maybe it's four, I don't know, six, you know. Uh, But whatever that is, (laughs) that that number, uh, that you think is a lot of kids, I don't really care. I'm not, not evaluating that here this morning. But whatever that is, you know that scenario where you've got the, the one child who constantly seems to draw your attention into need to address things with them. The whole time that's happening, what else is happening? There's a n- neglect of the others. Necessary neglect, yes, but neglect nonetheless, real, felt neglect. Is it for me? (laughs) Tom will get back with him if it is. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) 
leadership, if we're using the, the, the metaphor that the author is using throughout this book, I, I would say is necessary because all of us are prone in our hearts to want to go back to Egypt from time to time. And finally, I want to spend time in this third point, grace to overcome waning vision. Thank God for grace to overcome waning vision. Amen? You know, if we just went home now, I would have depressed everybody. Not really a very encouraging sermon. Um, but now that we see what the problem is, right, that he, with waning vision, now we, we need to ex- spend some time looking at the cure. And um, thank God for that. In the first place I want to look, at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is like I uh, got a friend who ran, he was at the time part of this church, um, in, in, in uh, these, these uh, ultras, 100 mile, like plus, 128 miles, something like that. And one of them was through Death Valley in July. Not January, July. I, was, I didn't make a mistake there. And, and so along the way, his wife would, would, would drive and would stop and have water and, and various things necessary to encourage in the time of need. I mean, you can only go so far before you have a time of need, right? We're in a wilderness journey. Maybe it's not quite as extreme as Death Valley in the short run, but in the long haul, sometimes it feels that way. And in those times of need, we need grace to help. We need grace from God to help. And the first place we go to get that, the necessary place we go to get that, is before the throne of grace. God's throne is called a mercy seat in the Old Testament, throne of grace here. It's the same concept. Isn't that wonderful to know our king sits on a mercy seat? That's just glorious. We need that mercy from him. There are many things that would entangle us or cause us to turn aside from the course marked out for us. We have access through prayer to the mercy and grace we need to help us. Prayer is arguably, I I think we can make this case from Scripture, prayer is the only way not to fall into besetting sins that knock us off the course. In other words, Without prayer, we will fall away into besetting sins. I mean, it's just going to happen. Self-reliance is never proven too effective. Jesus himself, nearing the end of his course, facing the final miles as he went to the cross, prayed himself, and he said to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is Indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's like saying, hey guys, I know you're willing to endure, but your flesh can't do it. (laughs) So you got to pray. Your flesh will fight you every step of the way. You've got to pray. It's in keeping with the kingdom prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And it's not just prayer for yourself. But prayer for 
you, that, that you all are to pray for us. Lead us not into temptation. We need one another's prayers, not just our own prayer. Because sometimes I need your prayer when my prayer life is weak. And you need my prayer when your prayer life is weak. We need each other's prayers. And they make a real difference. Just prior to Gethsemane, Jesus had prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail. We see in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, I've prayed for you. Well, it certainly stumbled, but it did not fail. Amen? Because of prayer. The grace we need also comes from Christ himself. And it follows us through the wilderness like the, the water from the rock followed Israel. That, that grace, <laughs> you think of Moses, you know, he, 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 the Lord tells him to speak to the rock. That's when he sins so much that he's not allowed to go into the promised land, right? But you notice that God gives water anyway. Yeah, we're going to mess all sorts of things up, including the leaders. But God gives grace anyway. He gives water. He gives Christ, who is that water from the rock, amen, the Spirit flowing from within Him to us, He gives that despite our blunders, despite our sins, despite how often we blow it. Thanks be to God. In Hebrews 12, the, the runners in this marathon of faith are encouraged first to fix their eyes on Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who has gone before us through suffering to the reward. So when we fix our eyes on Him, we not only see how to walk faithfully through suffering, because He did, but we see that there's a reward and that faithfulness has an outcome and that encourages us and strengthens us in the task. And then he gets more specific. Consider him who endured from sinners. This is chapter 12, verse 3 in Hebrews. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. See, yes, Jesus did not grow weary and faint-hearted, but now he wants us to consider him so that we don't grow weary and faint-hearted. The one who went before us had to endure hostility from sinners he endured even abandonment by his own disciples. Now, I looked up that term faint-hearted, and in the original, it, it says having a, a, a waning kingdom vision. I'm kidding. It's just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that at all. <laughs> yeah, well, it would have been brilliant, right? I mean, it's like perfectly fit with the sermon, but no. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But I would say that a faint heart does indeed come from hope deferred, which makes the heart sick. And that is a waning kingdom of vision. And by the way, hope deferred is a description of much of the Christian life. The not yet part of it, which seems to be a lot. So we need tools to battle waning vision because 
We live in a world of hope deferred. The author goes on to describe there in chapter 12 how rather than being faint-hearted, we are to realize that God is actually treating us like sons and daughters. He is forming us into the image of His Son. So he can write, quote, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I referenced this earlier. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So here's this picture of a marathon. And now you've got runners that are nearing the finish line, but they're going lame. About to quit. And he's telling them, that they need to remember that this is God treating them like sons. He's conforming them into the image of His Son. And in this very considering of Jesus, there's healing. You see, these difficulties can bring joy to our heart. We might gain Christ by sharing in His suffering, Philippians 3. There's another means of grace that is in Hebrews that is mentioned there, and we've already talked about it, but I, I want to specify it as a means of grace, and that is one another. We need one another. See, when we go to the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need, often God gives that grace through one another. It's important to remember that. Let us hold fast. We read it earlier in Hebrews 10. 24 and 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, that grace often comes in the form of encouragement from brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Encourage one another to run the race increases doesn't stay the same, it doesn't decrease, it actually increases. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, I don't know if you've run the math on this, but I did some pretty serious calculations and I've come to this conclusion. That the day of the Lord is closer now than it was 2,000 years ago. If you need, if you need the algorithm on that, I can provide it, but... Very detailed. Yeah. So, we are called to stir one another up to love and good works. The early church did not have printing presses, and they, they didn't spend Monday through Saturday studying the Bible to dive deeper into it, to understand it more clearly. I was having a conversation with one of you this week where we kind of got to this, and as I thought about it, I, I think it's something relevant to why things sometimes are the way they are amongst us. You see, they spent Monday through Saturday putting into practice what they heard. They had a six-to-one ratio between doing and hearing. That's pretty significant. Now, it's not maybe quite that simple. I get that. But there's something there. They memorize Scripture, but, you know, they're, they're taught the Lord's Prayer. They hear it, one, but what are they doing all week? They're memorizing it, and how are they memorizing it? They're praying it. So when we hear teaching on prayer, what do they go home and do? Pray. 
When we gather, we are to encourage one another toward love and good works. When, and, and, and when we leave gathering, we are to continue that encouragement. We need each other for the encouragement to continue the faith. Now, finally, important means of grace, ultimately, and we've already stated it really in the, 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 the earlier in this, but the source of cure for waning vision is ultimately God Himself. Listen to the benediction that is given at the end of this letter or this sermon. A lot of people consider Hebrews a written-out sermon. So whichever it is, this is the benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The, the waning vision of this second generation church will not die because the God who raises, raised our Lord Jesus from the dead is the one that strengthens us. So no matter how dead it may seem, He raises the dead. Aren't you glad we serve the God who raises the dead? That our faith is an Easter faith. Amen? He could raise their vision and He can raise our vision. He is the one doing the work. It may be hard work, but it's Effectiveness is dependent upon Him and not upon us. Isn't that glorious good news? And therefore, we can trust. And I want to leave you this morning with what I believe are encouraging words from William Cooper's hymn. It's spelled and looks like Cowper, but it's Cooper. Which contains very helpful truths for times when kingdom vision is waning. There's six verses, so or stanzas, or whatever you call them in this hymn, but listen closely. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.